Cosmic Salon again, and I have a very special guest. I was recently gifted to be on a wonderful panel over at the Hidden Gateway podcast of Justin Williams with Troy McLaughlin and also Clint Richardson, and I enjoyed them so much I asked them both to come onto my show. Troy's book, The Saturn Death Cult, The Link Between Planetary Catastrophes, Ancient Mythology, and a Coat ritual. And he also has a wonderful website called SaturnDeathCult.com where there's plenty of information. And from where I was standing over here, I was able to get to a lot of Easter eggs. Uh, He's got it set up so that you may find video and all this. So we'll get more later from Troy and everything will be in the show notes as usual. I would also like to bring to everyone's attention that Troy has been a little bit under the pink with his voice. And so if he gets a little scratchy in the voice, it's because he has been recovering. And I certainly know how that goes being a voice out here and talking. So I want to bring on my guest, Troy McLaughlin. Hello, Troy. Welcome to the Cosmic Salon. Hey, Nish. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, looking forward to this for, for a while now. Uh, it's great to be on. I'm thrilled to have you here. And I wanted to get a little bit of who you are here to start with. So what brings you into this territory? How did you find yourself in these waters? And um, as we talked about on the Hidden Gateway, well, what I mentioned when I came into the conversation was I was very much intrigued by your associating with Peter Mark Adams in the game of Saturn and all that, oh, which yes, is yes. very moving to me. Of course, I bought the book and I, I have a Scarlet imprints, their version of the solar Busca tarot, mm-hmm. which is the finest, cool. you know, they're just an exceptional, uh, they're exceptional, yeah. everything they do over there. So that really had my ear wanting to hear more. So fill us in. Who are you, Troy? <laughs> well, I, you know, it's been a long road uh, towards writing the Saturn Death Cult. Uh, I think it was about 10 years ago now, maybe a little bit more, that I put out the first edition. The second edition has been out since 2018. Um, a lot more sort of, uh, how do you say, expanded and uh, improved in, in terms of its uh, uh, graphics, its ability to get across ideas that quite often are difficult uh, in purely written form and so on because of the ideas, uh, the radical sort of concepts that have been uh, illustrated uh, in the book. But uh, the long march to that starts actually when I went to university uh, out of school. I uh, took um, subjects like uh, Egyptology, Assyriology, uh, biblical history, these kinds of um, uh, ancient uh, uh, topics and uh, it was during that time I stumbled upon the works of one Emmanuel Velikovsky, uh, mostly his historical reconstruction work um, that he was doing back in the 1950s. Of course, people will know Velikovsky more for the uh, problems, uh, the uh, the great controversy that he created back in the 1950s with his book, uh, Worlds in Collision, yes. uh, in which he, uh, you know, attempted to... Um, uh, show that uh, there was a much more dynamic history in the formation of the solar system, and that this dynamic history was actually took place during um, the you know the human epoch, uh, the times that humans have been on the earth. I stumbled across this, found this fascinating, went off to my um, uh, Egyptology professor with the book because the book actually had a uh, personal note from Valakowski to the professor. So he'd obviously donated it to the library. I thought this was great. I'll go and have a chat to him. 
I got in the door. I said, I've just been reading Valakovsky. And he, he immediately said, I don't do Valakovsky. Oh. And I, I, uh, I, I, it was quite, you know, he was quite abrupt about it. And I thought, you know, I got on well with this professor. He, he, he was a good guy. His name was Spallinger, and I think he's still there at Auckland University. He's a top, um, a top guy in the uh, in in the um, in, in Egyptology uh, in his own right. But I said a second time, well, I got that far. I don't do Velikovsky. And by the third time, it was really being said through clenched teeth. So I thought, well, this is a bust. So I apologized. I went out, and all that did, Nish, was it just made me want to find out more about what Velikovsky was all about. Yes. And so began quite a long-term absorption of all these, um, uh, you know, basic tenets that uh, Velikovsky kicked off. And since Velikovsky's, uh, you know, heyday and so on, he had various people coming out of his, his sphere of um, friends and colleagues and so on like that. There's been a growing network of people who – have expanded into what's become known as the electric universe uh, model, uh, which is a form of cosmology that's uh, very, very different to mainstream science, um, uh, you know, cosmology. It's a it's based on a lot of the insights of Velikovsky. He is definitely the father of that. But since then, there have been um, you know quite a few great minds, and even now in the last uh, twenty years, minds from mainstream science that have waited till retirement to now put their toe in this thing and start look you know uh, putting giving giving their own opinions, giving their own skills uh, into the equation to see how it how it holds up and so on and so it's it's a small but it's a growing very niche uh, um, you know type uh, segment of what a lot of mainstream science finds preposterous would call um, uh, pseudoscience, and it was from these people that uh, that I, you know, got to understand what Velikovsky was starting to hint at before he died: the role of the planet Saturn in the uh, formation of the um, of the universe, uh, uh, formation of the solar system, I should say, and uh, and basically how it. Uh, how it affected world mythology all the world over and uh, provides us with the mythological record that we have now. And it's from that that, um, you know, I, I, I found a connection that while this all sounds like talking about, you know, ancient mythology, um, ancient cosmology and so on, what I personally stumbled upon was the connection to how certain mythological archetypes have made their way into the culture of the modern world and have been used and exploited uh, by what I would call malicious agendas um, as a way of uh, gaining control over parts of humanity, if not the whole of humanity. And that's what I sought to uh, uh, put down in the book is that connection um, between this modern consequence of these old mythological uh, records that we have and I think, you know, going back to what you were saying, you bought, uh, it's just, uh, was it Peter Mark Adams' um, Game of Saturn? Yes. Uh, that has been a seminal moment in my own research uh, that he has provided in that he has effectively connected the modern world of um, Saturn worship uh, to the ancient world of Saturn worship through this um, tarot deck uh, that he has studied and uh, looked at that uh, came about in the Renaissance. So, you know, I'm happy to say that the path that I've gone along has managed now to kind of ferret out a, a, a definite passage of events and, and, and time and connected situations that revolve around the worship of uh, the Saturn god art archetype that connects us back to you know, truly ancient uh, be before history began times and up to the modern day. I want to look at this idea while we're just on the heels of it before we mm -hmm. get lost. The idea of the aspect of modern day society at large mm -hmm. worshiping the cult of Saturn without recognition and the importance mm -hmm. of understanding how it's its rings, if you will, are everywhere around us, how they've created a, a sort of prison for us. Mm -hmm. Let's let's deconstruct this a bit. 
Okay. Um, well, I guess, you know, for me, the first principle to understand when trying to connect a, um, an, uh, you know, this ancient sort of concept that seems dead and buried to most people, especially in, in the age of, of uh, modern world religions like Christianity, Islam, um, Judaism, and, and some of the Eastern religions. What I would say is that the Saturn death cult that I talk about um, in, in the book, it's really a, an illustrated and very basic introduction to the story of what I would call two contrasting so-called golden ages of mankind. And one of that was this idea of an ancient and beautiful mythological age ruled over, over by the mythical god uh, Saturn, this, this um, Saturn god archetype that comes out of culture, uh, out of uh, mythology, and which came, and this age came to a destructive end sometime in the mythological past. And the other golden age being this kind of idea of a man-made, <clears throat> man-made technology-driven golden age. Uh, that is to be brought about sometime in the future for the benefit of, of a privileged elite, an elite that follows this distorted occult understanding of the original golden age of Saturn. And and this is key to it. They see themselves as that ancient golden age's rightful inheritors and custodians and the people who will represent what was the Saturn death cult, uh, sorry, the Saturn god archetype in this new contrived technology-driven golden age that they seek to bring the world into. Um, so, you know, from that perspective, linking today's age to the old age, it's really all about who gets to control, uh, you know, basically society the, uh, on a global scale. In the ancient times, this was the prerogative of the Saturn god archetype. And as a result of that, because of the archetypes that have come down and been lodged into the deep subconscious of the collective human population down through uh, generations and generations, it is that archetype that can be exploited to give a kind of authority um, and justification uh, on the part of certain elites who plan to remodel the earth in their own sort of ideas of uh, uh, techno- you know, technologically driven immortality, um, uh, you know, and, and end to procreation, uh, and, and basically the idea of an elite um, behaving like the Saturn God archetyped in its own right over the rest of us. Let's look at the idea of how technology and when I say mm. that, what I want to really root us into is the idea of the virgining AI and digital twinning with yeah. facsimiles of the natural world, as we've seen mm. with Second Life and, say, Metaverse and all that. Yeah. Well, um, it's very interesting because I'm just completing an essay uh, with our friend um, um Justin, who you said we'd been on the panel with. And, uh, you know, part of that was it was a great um, project to sort of do because it's helped me get a lot of insights and straighten out a lot of ideas uh, between what these technologies are for. And my own conclusions, Nish, when it comes to this is that um, at stake here is when you see the importance of a this Saturn god or creator god archetype that has come down uh, through mythology to us and their positioning in in that role. One of the aspects of of the creator god archetype is that, of course, by right of creation, it was always assumed that they own – uh, you know, creation as such. If 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 one believes that the Earth is a created, the Earth and the universe is a created phenomenon. With these people that uh, want to, uh, you know, supplant almost usurp the creator God archetype and bestow that power and authority on themselves, they need to find a way. Uh, I believe of re-engineering the whole of creation so that they can claim a patent over creation that is different from that created by uh, the creator God. And thereby, they can supplant 
natural creation with an artificial creation that can be legally owned through patent rights and through what they believe is their form of by right of creation. They create a facsimile that is engineered enough to be different from the original um, genetic DNA makeup, uh, and they this gives them the legal pretext uh, in which to then make claim over a new creation and that creation is designed to ultimately supplant the old creation owned by the creator god so yeah it's really just a matter of positioning themselves as the new saturn god archetype um, but as a as a as a corporate body of elitists yes and again this is literally all around us and people are swimming in it without realizing it and by terrifying Con- it's terrifying and and people are are contracting with <clears throat> it and giving away their rights without understanding these steps that we do in agreement to user agreements and and all this stuff these little yeah. tiny steps that ultimately lead us into a very big trap that by all appearances looks to be a bit like quicksand where you the more you move <clears throat> trying to get out the deeper in it pulls you yeah I in, in my book, of course, I the the, the thing the engine uh, that has been developed and refined over the last two two and a half thousand years um, to bring us to this point where they have this capability is is I believe what is called today the uh, central banking model of finance slavery of the populace is the means by which. You can most easily realize dreams for yourself. And this is why I call it a death cult. Most people refer to a death cult as just something, some cult that's obsessed with death, uh, you know, killing and so on like that. I think it goes much further, much deeper than that. A death cult is anything which requires the sacrifice of um, other people uh, to realize the aims and objectives of a separate elite uh, for themselves. And slavery. I think is a form of death. It's certainly the the, the death of dignity in, in anybody who has been enslaved, um, and you know it's not beyond uh, the powers that be that have ruled over the last two and a half thousand years in various forms uh, to use the threat of death, violence, as a way to make sure that we continue to work under the central banking model uh, that has been developed over the years, that has effectively financially enslaved uh, enslaved us enslaved vast populations, whole nations, tribes, races, peoples. And uh, we've never reached a point in history quite like now in terms of indebtedness, debt-based slavery, as we are witnessing in the world today. And that control over that system has always been the means by which they have been able to finance and guide a – uh, uh, changes in culture through, you know, Hegelian dialectic, um, this, uh, you know, um, you know, problem solution um, process where uh, they, com- they 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 control all the uh, factors being introduced into into society to steer people in a certain direction, and uh, yeah, it, it it is that central banking model that I want most people to understand that you have to get rid of that in order for humans to get anywhere near to being able to climb out of this quicksand sort of scenario that uh, that you were talking about just before. Yes, and I think we should take a second here and maybe go to the past. But before we get there, it's always interesting to me that when we look at forms of control and how to entrap people's, some of the main focuses are always sex, death, and safety. These things that seem almost unreachable, really, for the most part. People that chase sex are always chasing that first, you know, euphoria of the first orgasm. And and same Mm -hmm. with safety, not wanting to die. And of course, death is at the core of that. But let's Mm -hmm. go back and look at Peter Mark Adams' work here for a minute. So, you know, the question always is, who are they? And what are they? And in that seminal work of his, 
that's it's just incredible with that solo busca tarochi is mm-hmm. incredible because we get a sense that this is something for the elite. We get a sense that this is something for the elite to stay within certain bloodlines. And in order mm-hmm. to do this, the sacrifice becomes very uh, integral at the projection of moving forward in the idea of time, which is very much the idea of Saturn. And so with the recycling of souls, if you will, looking through, say, stuff like uh, baptism of the dead, right? Mm-hmm. And these uh, sigils to bring forth something that has passed into something that is present, a soul, a being, a bloodline. This becomes a darker story. Oh, yeah. Yes, uh, this is what I most learned um, from um, Adam's work. You know, it was was always that nagging idea, how would a rational human being ultimately degenerate to the thought that's, you know, uh, human sacrifice, child sacrifice, child murder could be means by which to, um, you know, improve one's standing in the cosmos and the in the overall uh, scheme of things, and particularly in terms of the uh, those families that seem to have held elite positions. We call them bloodlines and so on that have come down through the ages. They they all seem to be connected in some way, and you you see them popping up at different times in history if you want to do the actual work and research it. And what Mark, uh, Peter Mark Adams uh, did for me was he he highlighted the reincarnationist idea uh, that is central to a lot of Saturn worship down through the centuries, how it has become a part of the, uh, the creed. And in doing so, if somebody is not necessarily part of a particular bloodline, but if you are part of a bloodline, the idea of being reincarnated outside of that bloodline uh, at a future time is probably terrifying to them. And so they use attack magic. They use all forms of magic ritual uh, as illustrated at times quite horrifically, uh, you know, in the solar basket Tarochi. They use this uh, attack magic to ensure that when they're reincarnated again, they find themselves within these particular bloodlines that uh, have seemingly uh, controlled the destiny of nations for you know well over two and a half thousand years. Once I understood that, that what what was at stake for them was not losing their place in this reincarnating wheel of time, so that they would be born back into these powerful families. Then I understood how such incredibly uh, distasteful concepts like child sacrifice, uh, you know, could be contemplated by people who are desperate to maintain that kind of status throughout not only their temporal lives, but in their future lives. Absolutely. And so one of the things that's been very interesting in this revelation we are in, the revealing of, where the veil's very thin, and for those that are seeking to see, they can now see, and, and and so on, and hear, and all this. When we look at modernism, where we are now, it's becoming very clear that these practices never ended. It's becoming very clear that they are concurrent. We could name a lot of different uh, sources here. One, of course, that seems to be timely is the Epstein stuff, and the mm-hmm. underground world that is facilitating these services for certain people. And in that, when we look at the craziness, and I'm just going to be crude like that, of what's going on on the whole platform that we call the world around us, it is starting to look more realistic and coming out of the shadow, if you will, of Saturn and into the light. We are becoming illuminated, if you will. And this is starting, Troy, to look like an open rule. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, again, Peter Mark Adams made, uh, 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 gave us, gave me an incredible insight 
into what is the difference between the creator god archetype that is based on Saturn as opposed to the creator god archetypes of the modern, uh, you know, today's uh, world religions, you know, Yahweh, Allah, um, these um, uh, gods of the um, of, of of the Abrahamic uh, traditions and so on like that. And what I found most incredible about it, and what actually I feel is one of the greatest takeaways that you can have in understanding why things happen the way they do in our world today and why the Saturn, what I call death cult culture, is alive and well, is what Adam says is that really there is a difference. And you know, I'm, this, I'm not directly quoting him, but this is what I got from his book. There is such a difference between the Saturn archetype whereby – Everything is under the threat of a potential new doomsday event. And the uh, creator god archetype of uh, the Abrahamic religions in which everything is under the or, or, or moving towards a day of judgment by a righteous god using laws that are applicable to both God and and, uh, and the whole of humanity. And the difference is, is the capriciousness of the Saturn system because uh, the you know the Saturn God archetype, because it's it's never about judgment. It's just about one day the Saturn God will decide that he's had enough and he's going to start over again. So he just brings wholesale destruction, and the whole essence of the worship that is illustrated, uh, the, the Saturn type worship that is illustrated through the um, the, the solar busker um, Tarochi is is that uh, what we see here is people trying to influence the Saturn god archetype to maybe overlook them when a doomsday event might, whenever it might come, when it arrives. In other words, it becomes a culture of currying influence, currying favor with that which is in control, as opposed to being confident that everything is judged by the same weights and measures by the same scale, uh, including the God uh, of creation himself. Um, and so therefore, when we look at our society, we often see that it's it's degenerated, and certainly since the time of Rome, into a society that is about who you know and not what you know in terms of how you can get ahead. It's about getting influence, getting more and more influence. And of course, the greatest influence is, is in being able to manipulate the Saturn God archetype to not include you in any future doomsday plans he might have. Let's explore this a little bit deeper in certain rituals and rites. And this could include things that come down into the Abrahamic faiths. Mm -hmm. We see them, we see them peppered without and throughout and all around us is this idea of favor and mine is better than yours. And this idea Mm -hmm. of a hierarchy that goes on, which of course a hierarchy is very Saturnian and part of that archetypal functioning. And so how deep does this mythos go? Because when I look at Abrahamic stuff, I see Saturn all over. And just mm-hmm. as soon as we go that far, as you were saying, and we step back to other aeons and other active points historically where the archetype is very much alive and not in shadow, where it seems mm-hmm. to be now, it's all still there. These scripts, to me, Troy, look the same. Mm-hmm. I, um, I, I would say that there are fundamental differences and a lot of confusion when it comes to, okay, just, you know, take the Hebrew Bible um, as, as, a, as a base from which to operate on. I would say that there has been a tremendous amount of um, disingenuousness on the part of translators where they have given the impression that wherever you see Lord, Lord God, Yahweh, it's basically the same uh, entity at work in terms of those words being spoken. When in fact, there there seems to me to be a battle between very much this idea of those who would want to create a society based on influence and um, and uh, you know advancement through influence, as opposed to those who would want to have a a satin. What, what, what could I say? A, a sort of a, 
a legal-based society in which everybody can appeal to the same law on an equal basis. doesn't matter whether you're a king or a pauper uh, in the land. You get to be judged by the law equally. And the reason I say this, Nishis, is, is that the Saturn archetype itself is schizophrenic. Its original view and so on is as a beneficent god um, that brings about an age of great empowerment to human beings um, through the concept of let there be light, which ultimately it means he brought about the concept of uh, time as a measurement. Um, from an, an ageless past before that, we call it um, in Saturn theory, uh, the purple dawn, uh, where human beings had no concept of the passage of time and therefore had no concept of, of uh, weights and measures at all, uh, and so therefore could not develop any form of society. But at the beginning, with, 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 with Saturn bursting forth onto the world, what I, in the Hebrew Bible, you would call the let there be light moment, Human beings now had the ability to calculate time, which meant they had the ability to discover all kinds of other weights and measures and so on. And this is why in the Hebrew text you often find – where well, you, you specifically find the idea that humankind is sort of told to go and measure civilization. It's a period of um, – sorry, measure the natural creation. It's a period of, of uh, humans changing from being uh, animals that live by day by day to um, a new type of species that can create a civilization uh, for you know the, the, the whole of them and, and, and tame nature, so as to speak. This is the good part. This is the part of Saturn that looks back on why Saturn is so associated with time, because Saturn brought light into the world at the beginning of this great golden age. And this great golden age was an age of discovery, a wondrous age where people did not uh, come into conflict over resources, did not come into conflict over who owned what land or whatever. It was an age of discovery and expansion through this great creation that before was really only available to you in terms of how far you could see in this d dark, dimly lit time of the, of the purple dawn. And uh, with that change, um, that, uh, you know, that creator god uh, archetype can be seen to be uh, very uh, beneficial to human beings. What, however, happens is mythology tells us that that golden age comes to this end, uh, this uh, doomsday-like end. Uh, this is the story of Atlantis, the story of the fall of the Garden of Eden. This is the story of uh, virtually, you know, Arcadia uh, in, in, in Grecian times. The Chinese and the Mesoamerican religions all have this destructive doomsday period, which saw the Saturn god archetype in all its forms change to the dying god archetype and start to fall from his place in heaven where he had resided so and I, I do purposely say he because there is a definite linkage up in mythology between a, a, a male creator god, a female uh, creator goddess, and a child um, warrior god, which yes. is basically Saturn, Venus, and Mars. Um, you know, when, once we get into the cosmology, we can see how that fits into the mythology, what they were actually talking about uh, if, if, if uh, Saturn theory turns out to be on the right track. But it's that break off, that time when the when when the, the Saturn god archetype became the dying god archetype and left the heavens exiled now to a pinprick out on the edge of the solar system. It's that time and that that destruction that has left such an indelible, um, you know, fear on 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 the minds of um, of the whole of collective humanity. And it has literally come down through the ages, that doomsday archetype that that launched what you would call a, a silver age. These, these are the ages of mankind, according to the, the ancients Hesiod, and these people talk about these ages. Your golden age goes into a silver age where they're desperately trying to rediscover what was so great about the golden age, this this age of, of, of no war, no conflict. Uh, and so on. And it is during this silver age that the corruption starts to seep in when people, I argue in my book, 
start to understand that they can actually achieve a quasi golden age lifestyle, but to do it, they have to do it on the backs of many more other people around them. And, and hence begins the process, the de degeneration down through the ages uh, into a mindset where a, an elite tries to gain control over a majority in order to literally you know, facilitate their concept of being the rightful inheritors of what was once the golden age legacy. Let's look at the idea of light. Saturn brings the light. Also, we see this in, you know, in the canon with Lucifer and all this, and, and both are fallen. This is old school stuff. It goes, it, it permeates through everything. It's it's not sure. just Abrahamic, obviously. What is this concept? And, and let's look at this concept as tied into the electric universe, this concept of illumination, of light mm -hmm. and seeing and being enlightened. R right. Well, you see, the enlightened part is sort of that idea that Saturn bestowed on human beings, first of all, the ability to, to measure time. And what we have to understand is, uh, is in the ancient um, – uh, world, they understood that there were ages of men. We we often talk about you know the Stone Age followed by the the Bronze Age and the Iron Age and the modern Industrial Age, the Middle Ages, all these sorts of um, demarcations that we make. But there's this idea of a Golden Age followed by a Silver Age followed by a Bronze Age. Some will put then after that a Heroic Age, the Age of Homer, and so on like that. And then you enter into the Iron Age, which is you know the the degenerative. Um, losing its spiritual foundation kind of age that we have found ourselves in since the time of the, the founding of Rome up to modern, modern times. Now, before all of that, um, they talk about a, uh, a purple dawn, a, you know, a, a, an age of, uh, of dusky light that existed uh, before the golden age came into being and that there is no – a uh, particular time or length that this purple dawn age existed. And uh, this is found in Mesoamer Mesoamerican Texas. The, the Popol Vuh is very, very um, uh, clear on, on, on the status of human existence before this sudden burgeoning of light that they attribute to their version of uh, the Saturn god archetype. And so what happens is that the golden age is launched by the sudden illumination that changes this dusky makeup of, um, of, of of atmosphere that human beings had been going through beforehand. And it is from that illumination that time is able to be calculated, that they see a new world that can be measured in itself and so on. They begin this great age of discovery and, um, and knowledge and so on. But it begins with this idea that light literally exploded onto uh, the planet uh, Earth to change it so dramatically uh, as to change the very uh, way that humans actually went about their lives and, uh, uh, and started living in, you know, in the world that they now saw around themselves, quite literally, in a different light. This is the let there be light moment that the Bible talks about. This is part of their whole create a God concept that it starts with actual light. Now, with my book, Saturn Death Cold, what I try to do is I try to give a natural explanation as to how this happened, that it, it, it was not a simple spiritual event. It, it certainly was the foundations for what would become spiritual norms amongst people, but it wasn't merely a spiritual event. It was actually a physical, natural event that took place that radically altered the way uh, the world looked to human beings at that time. And this is why, you know, my, my thesis calls upon this radical new cosmology to explain these natural origins of the original Saturn Golden Age in which it, it is stipulated in the Saturn theory that the recent history of the solar system and its formation must be completely reappraised from the uniformitarian mainstream concepts that says 
that the skies that you see today have been largely the same for at least 4 billion years and certainly almost exactly the same within the time of human existence and so on. And that slow change is the means by which the solar system has formed. Um, what we bring to the equation is a, an entirely different idea that the solar system and the skies that the ancients saw was so radically different um, as they have told us in mythology that it can only it can only suggest that our solar system is only now recently come into the stable configuration that we see it today and that within the human collective experience down through human history that humans existed what amounts to a captured system um a, a sort of a, a a capture model of a solar system that grabbed planets into its uh uh, into its influence, into its orbital influence uh, during this time when humans saw what was going on and that Saturn was one of these planets uh, that was captured in that way. And the the most radical aspect about this is that Saturn theory argues that the Earth and the planet Mars, at least those two planets, were satellites of this planet Saturn when it was once a brown dwarf star and that this brown dwarf star was captured by the sun possibly around about um, 12 to 14,000 years ago and that this capture process is what makes up the record of mythology, the, 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 the craziness of mythology that you, you see in the mythological record is really simply the perspective of people on Earth writing down their witness accounts of what they saw take place in the heavens while the Saturn was captured with Earth and Mars as part of its, um, part of its uh, uh, you know, satellite, uh, it, it's planetary satellites. Uh, what I have to say at, at this point is that you've got to remember that a lot of people will read mythology today. Mythology has been massaged very, very much into narratives that we can understand in, in, in terms of the prose or even poetic form. Whereas the original mythologies that we often read, and particularly Mesoamerican uh, mythologies, um, uh, the, um, uh, some of the Nordic mythologies, uh, these mythologies are almost unintelligible in terms of a an actual narrative taking place in terms of characters and, and people like that. So what happened is that when Darwinian um, and uh, celestial, uh, Newtonian celestial mechanics became the dominant theme in mainstream society, a lot of mythologists had a problem. They kept seeing in mythology that the Saturn god archetype in mythology seemed to be the stationary sun that shone at night from a position up in the um, – the northern celestial realms of uh, the Earth's um, heavens, and that it didn't move. And it was the most dominant feature for the people writing mythology in ancient times. And, of course, if they looked out their window at night, there was nothing like this. There was nothing like this during the day in the modern world that we live in. So because they believed that the skies had not changed for billions of years, they had to contrive a way to shift the Saturn archetype of mythology into the idea of a sun god, the sun that um, that you know rises in the east, sets in the west, as we see it today, and this has dreadfully confused um, much of what myth um, mythology's message is in terms of planetary catastrophes that reshape the Earth. Uh, into the world that we have today, but the absolute chaos, the frightening chaos that the ancients lived through while these planets all rearranged uh, during a period of time when Saturn was captured by the sun. I think this is a good time to maybe nail down the idea of scholarship as far as historical documents, historical narrative, and the way things are changing. Now, you've addressed this a bit here, but I do think it's important to maybe drill down on this further. What is it that we can trust when we see that, in general, the winners write the stories? 
how do we know that our historical documents, and I'm talking about the most occulted ones that we can get our yeah. hands on, that seem to be the most uh, tantalizing, if nothing else. What can we trust, Troy? Well, I mean, the, the, the old um, caveat is, you know, if you really want to dig into this, you've got to go back to the original texts. What I'm hoping with my books and death calls, I provide a key for people to interpret. You don't necessarily have to go back to the original texts as in learn Sanskrit, learn Greek, learn, you know, Egyptian hieroglyphics and so on. It helps, but you don't necessarily have to. All you have to do is go back to those texts that retain the kind of craziness that mythology seems to be if if you go looking for a narrative, if you go looking for a particular storyline that is, you know, uh, anthropomorphized, for want of a better uh, term, to sort of suit characters that are kind of human in nature and in, in the way they behave. If you go in with the key that what we're actually talking about and um, – it's Plato or Aristotle, and I think it might be Aristotle, who who categorically says that the gods of mythology are the stars. All right, um, that and in those times they had what you called the five naked eye uh, planets that uh, that you know that they could see, and when you understand that there is this planetary uh, concept of mythology, and you understand which names are associated with which. Um, archetype and planet, uh, which God archetype and planet, uh, I think that's where you start to begin to not necessarily um, know you're on the way to truth, but you've got an alternative viewpoint that can make a little bit more sense in terms of uh, what was written down in uh, you know the the, the, myth, the mythological record. And if you then have a look at an alternative model. Uh, you know, uh, uh, a physics model of the universe, which is the electric universe, which is different from the gravity-only model that that is dominant uh, in mainstream society science today. That electric universe, and particularly through its subset uh, Saturn theory, starts to give you natural explanations as to why people were encased in an endless purple dawn, dusk, um, before this great supernova-like explosion took place that brought light onto the planet. And then, you know, the, the, the craziness of, of how all these planets rearranged themselves ran amok, created situations where interactions between these planets could have resulted in the near extinction of humanity. You know, all due to electrical principles that the electric universe can actually explain to you why Jupiter is the god of the thunderbolt. You know, uh, in terms of uh, what they saw this planet being able to throw out uh, in the heavens at that time. I think that's where you've got to start. However, uh, once you start on the road where you are looking purely, if it's mythology and is the more occulted forms and so on like that, it really just comes down to trying to get as close to the original texts as possible rather than some of the more popular interpretations. Uh, I'll go out on a limb and say that there is a huge difference between what the church says of the Christian God as opposed to what the Bible says of the Christian God. Um, and most people are happy to just simply take the authority of those who claim authority and again, this is one of the things that I hope to provide people with a mechanism to challenge that kind of authority. But most people are willing to take the authority of those who say they are the church, uh, the leaders of the church, the uh, scholars of the church, and so on. And they take that their conclusions without testing them against other ideas that might be out there to be tested with. So as we get to the end of this first segment, I want to end it on something a little bit juicy here. Not that any of this hasn't been. <laughs> However, sure. it's because you, you just brought this up. The idea of what's the bigger God here? So if we strip mm -hmm. away religion and we strip away mm -hmm. the idea of God through gatekeepers and through distortions, yeah. what's the mm -hmm. core here? What's the creator force here? 
Okay, so, I mean, this ultimately boils down to what I was saying before, that the Saturn archetype has become quite schizophrenic. One minute he's, you know, sort of blasting life onto the planet through the release of light. Next minute he's bringing about a deluge that virtually destroys the whole of humanity. And um, you know, subsequent time from then has been uh, you know, priesthoods have tried to figure out why would this God go from that to being this destructive God? Because, you know, in our own sort of uh, uh, mythologies in the West and so on, the Saturn archetype is often portrayed as, you know, with a scythe, the great scythe for the um, uh, the culling of humanity, the, the cutting down uh, of humanity. Uh, it's that idea of... Um, uh, you know, death with with uh, his scythe coming uh, that has made its way into modern Christianity, even, and and so you've got the schizophrenic you know aspect of the um, uh, of the two natures of, uh, of of the Saturn archetype. Saturn worship in its distorted form is that, and and that is my my opinion. Its distorted form is one in which they are constantly trying to influence Saturn. In, in, you know, before he makes his next doomsday uh, move and destruction thing, they're trying to they're trying to make sure that they don't get caught up in it by influencing that creator god. The other side of Saturn is seen in the idea of the logos or um, the word, and the word being at the beginning is that the original uh, concept of the Saturn archetype creator is that he brought a message um, or that God brought a message for humans to develop and contemplate, to be esoteric on, to think inwardly about, and that the basis of that message was to provide humanity with um, accurate weights, measures, uh, laws, which all humanity, irrespective of their intellectual capacity, uh, their ability, their, their their talents, their personalities and so on, they could all turn first and fundamentally to a set of laws that everybody could, could trust and everybody could um, employ to settle disputes uh, amongst people. Uh, these, I believe, are the two divergent forms of the Saturn archetype, whether it's even the biblical Yahweh archetype, the Allah archetype, um, the, the the Yellow Emperor archetype within China, Quetzalcoatl, uh, amongst the Mayans and such like that. This is the battle that humanity has had, what you would almost call really the root of good and evil. And that is those who want a world where justice rules and those who want a world where influence rules. Well, I'm certainly in the the side or on the side of justice. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. It, unfortunately, that's the thing is that it becomes a corrupted person who begins to believe that justice is whatever. You know, this is a psychopathic element of you know ten percent of humanity. Yes, um, justice is anything that uh, gets what they want for themselves. Um, that's how it becomes uh, you distorted. Know, uh, yeah, yeah, it, it, you know, it becomes entrenched um, in, in, in society. And, of course, when people see these people do well um, because they start to develop mechanisms, the first mechanism being the tough guy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill you if you don't do what I tell you. But then he's got to control 20 people with that, and it becomes a bit difficult. So they move to different mechanisms. And as I say, the refined mechanism is debt and slavery, which then allows them to – corrupt everybody down through um, the levels of the stratas of society because they can pay them to do what they want done uh, that is beneficial to themselves while at the same time keeping the rest of society uh, indebted in that they lose everything if they can't pay back a usurious debt. But that, that's, that's basically the Saturn Death Cult book, you know, in a nutshell, how they've used that, that archetype uh, to position themselves in this way, uh, to create a world where influence and money being the greatest influencer becomes the, uh, you know, the go-to cultural aspect of virtually every culture. Justice is, you know, very, very far away from most cultures in the world today, but I have hope. This is such a salient concept to land on here, is that there's a higher form of justice and 
when we hear how distorted everything gets, and sadly our language is not helping us anymore, and the idea of the higher justice is something that means something different for different peoples, you know, and this is, of course, starts to play into the different layers of what you are influenced by, what you are indoctrinated into, how you have been entrained. And so for one person, the high level of justice through a macro view could be Anubis weighing your heart against the feather of justice, right? And this, of course, then it starts to get burdened down with Burdens, burdens of the heart, yeah. burdens of of actions one has done, etc., and it becomes very convoluted and almost really discombobulated because the pieces are scattered everywhere. What becomes a higher justice? And at some point, I wonder where did we lose the idea of this bigger level that involves a very macro view of justice? Because if I just look at for example, my iteration is niche here in the realm of my life. And I believe I am an eternal soul spirit having these experiences that look, you know, to some people maybe like reincarnation or whatever. I'm coming into some sort of frequency that seems more dense. If I rise up into a different frequency and I can see how how maybe over here in this iteration, I was absolutely horrendous, off with their head type, right? And then over here in another iteration at a different frequency, then I, you know, I'm absolutely just, you know, on high with everything. And how does this ultimately balance out through these bigger scales of justice? This is kind of where. I try to balance my own actions here in the realm of this of this experience I'm having is that right. perhaps some of the stuff that I find uh, somehow, I don't know, knee-jerky or um, complexes, as Jung would say, that seem to be outside of the realm of my personal experience that have something bigger that reach into another time or space that that seem to play into this idea of other iterations or of a bigger of a bigger narrative going on we can't see when we're myopic we can't see the totality and i'm not suggesting that i or anyone else can see the totality from say an omniscient view i'm not saying i'm omniscient which i can rise myself out of this experience and say uh, oh, okay, so there is more to this picture. This is why I have some knee-jerk response to heights because I, mm-hmm. I had fallen out here or something or why I have neck pain because I was beheaded here. And it does not have to actually play down into the idea of reincarnation, just different no. frequencies in which I have been at at different times does any of that make any cohesive sense it it does on a morphic field sense there rupert sheldrake's ideas uh, you're just taking your idea of um, pain you sort of in the neck if you're tapping in to those morphic fields where experience people have experienced such like that you too can you know i would say it's a form of inspiration almost in terms of your own experience that you can tap into what other people have suffered particularly also what you may be heading into uh, or away from in the past. That's, that's my own sort of, uh, sort of uh, you know, thing that I'm exploring uh, with uh, the idea of morphic fields as, as, as the connecting element between what would be a higher, uh, you know, um, mind uh, that is feeding the rest of us as we move into higher levels of uh, understanding but what i liked was your reference to anubis with the um you know the 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 casting of the feather uh and the scales to see what it was because one of the in the historical sense of this um of what we're talking about uh, you know when things go wrong egyptian culture was very much a um a, a resurrectionist culture uh, it was a culture they you know they were very kindly minded in the way they did they wanted to take their wealth with them and be resurrected back into that and so on but by being a resurrections culture they also were a culture where the their version of the uh, saturn god archetype ra 
um, and, and and so on, you know, had instituted this idea of uh, that you come to judgment, and that's the you know the purpose in the Book of the Dead where you get that um, that story of the person going uh, to present their life. Um, you know, at the time they meet Anubis and so on in there, you know, as they pass over into death and ultimately onto a resurrected life on the other side. Uh, what you find is that the corruption starts to come when priesthoods start telling people, give me some of your money and I'll put in a good word with you <laughs> with Anubis. Yes. All right. That's the corruption. Okay, so it should never, ever be that when you are facing judgment from the creator God, that you can influence the creator God to do anything other than dispense true justice. Okay, that 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 is really what true, you know, the buck stops with God, you know, whatever that God is that uh, that, that you can appoint. Yes. When you start trying to influence that process. Um, through and particularly through money, and this is exactly why uh, the banking system has been the main course of enslavement down through the ages and the main means for this Saturn death cult culture to try and influence a Saturn uh, god archetype to give them a free ride, even if they don't deserve it. This is where it happened, and and so that that's, those silver priesthoods begin in ancient Egypt, in ancient Sumer, in in terms of the Western experience. It began in other parts of the world as well. I'm not an expert on 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 the, on those um, aspects, but in terms of the Egyptian, Sumerian, um, Akkadian experiences, yes, it all starts off with this idea: you are to be judged, therefore live a good life, and when you come to be judged, you take what you get. To this idea, flip me a couple of gold coins, and I'll uh, put in a good word for you. <laughs> a coin for the ferryman. So uh-huh. I, uh, <laughs> I want to thank you for this wonderful first hour into what's going to be an excellent speakeasy section of the next hour. Troy McLaughlin, mm-hmm. how do people find you in the world? Um, well, really, my website, satindeathcult.com, is is basically, I, I put as much on there to, to give people the full story in terms of what my uh, book has. Uh, the book has uh, quite an expanded um, uh, um, you know, amount of material compared to the website. But uh, if you go to satindeathcult.com, you can see some of the work that I've been, you know, sort of developing and, uh, and what I've put into the book. And if the book you know, interests you. There are links on the site uh, to uh, its sale on the evilamazon.com, um, <laughs> where you can buy the. Uh, it is only available in Kindle, but uh, it's um, it's there for purchase uh, throughout on, on all markets. So wherever you might be at, if you're hearing this, it's available that way. This has been a great pleasure, and I want to thank you for coming to the Cosmic Salon. Oh, my, my pleasure entirely. Thank you very much. And there he goes, Troy McLaughlin, a truly lovely man and a scholar. I would like to thank the patrons of this show, Christy Tesmer, Eric Peterson, Jason Lamson, Jessica Lynn, J.H. Armstrong, Kate Kukulan, Laura Dunn, Louise B., Marcy Shapiro, Mark Betcher, Melanie Poe, Michael Watcher, Michael Watts, Neil McNaughton, Noel Jeanette, still Fiona, and Yogi Chander. And Kate, I apologize if I chopped up your name too badly. I very much apologize for that. Also, Babs, the genealogist extraordinaire, who is just a wonderful light in my life, and JJ, who is a patron here at this level, as well as a moderator when we do the live streams. And everyone knows JJ out there. So thank you all, as well to all the other wonderful patrons who come 
through Patreon to help produce this show. I very much appreciate it. It is a nice affirmation and truly a gift in these times. Thank you. I want to remind us all that as we're moving into this territory and every show I do, we're just deeper in out in the collective, out in the outer world, outer space as I call it. There's just more going on. All this energy is amping and we are, we are deeper into this now. It's later than we all think. And you know I don't believe in an end situation such as uh, a world-ending apocalyptic event. I believe in emanations and waves and even resets but there's no end we do not die this is something i've known my entire life outside of this iteration remember if you come to look at this all as a dream a very magical powerful potent dream that is very real that feels as if it is acute uh deep sensate heavy really where you are lucid and it's all very real then you start to get closer to something that looks like a self-awakening because then you can feed the dream you can reframe the dream and redirect your energies into something that works for you where you start to gain knowledge from the hard-earned lessons that the tears you've cried the sorrows you've had become a gateway a washing a purging of sorts to ready you for the next adventures you're going to be on and we are always on a new adventure the dreamer loves the dream the dreamer feeds the dream let's awaken within this dream and explore this concept further. Let's find our way and our footing here so that we are prepared for whatever's next. And with that, I want to thank you for spending time with me here in the Cosmic Salon.